Assalamu alaikum, brothers and sisters. Welcome to another episode of the Remaster Podcast, hosted by me, Abdullahi Freeman. We're here joined with a very special guest, and we'll be talking about a very special topic, chronicling the sunnah, the sunnah of the Prophet, So today, I have the honor of having the wonderful guest, Brother Muhammad Badawi. He's been, he's from Mass, Brooklyn, from in New York. Shout out to uh, the home of Mass, right? Mass has been a second home since he uh, entered uh, Brooklyn in 1999. Growing up, they offered him an outlet for socialization, and it helped carve out his youth uh, through a positive Islamic environment. And coming back as a team member is an awesome opportunity for him to uh, uh, just uh, pay back for what he received from the community. Um, He's been blessed to study at uh, Um Al-Qura University, graduating with associates in the Arabic language with a focus on teaching and a bachelor's degree in Sharia law. He also was able to complete an associate's degree in applied sciences as well as a bachelor's in health and nutrition from Brooklyn College. So it looked like we should be talking about uh, fitness instead of just the sunnah too. We got to talk about the fitness of the sunnah, right? I'm down. I'm down. I'm a bit rusty. It's been a while, but I'm down. I dabble <laughs> Brother, in fitness and health. Brother Muhammad, assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the show. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's a huge honor to be here with you, Abdullahi, and uh, I'm excited to speak about the sunnah of our beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu yeah, this is a it's a fun topic. Um, as you know, this uh, when this episode will be released, it'll be uh, 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 see. This is where when you the host, then it gets kind of interesting, right? The birth month of the Prophet is it Rabia Awal? Yeah, yeah. So that's the month that's going to be coming when this episode is released. So just to chronicleize and talk about his life, somebody very crucial, very central to the way we practice our lives, the way we live our lives, everything of the ummah, right? So, you know, before we begin, is there anything you want to say, uh, 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 any introduction, any piece you want to say before we get into the topic itself? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, when we're, first of all, bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulullah, Allahumma salli ala muhammad wa ala ali muhammad, kama sallaita ala ibrahim wa ala ali ibrahim, innaka hamidu majid. Allahumma barik ala Muhammadin wa ala ali Muhammad kama barakta ala Ibrahim wa ala ali Ibrahim naka hamidun majid Rabbi shrah li sadri wa yassir li amri wa ahlul uqtata min sani afqaw qawli We begin in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and asking him to send peace and blessings upon our beloved leader and teacher and prophet and messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam peace and blessings be upon him and his family and his companions and all those who follow their footsteps till the day of judgment asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless us by including us in that legacy Allahumma ameen Oh Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the dua of Moses, Musa, peace be upon him, where he said, expand for me my chest, loosen my tongue, so that people can understand what I have to say, so I can be clear, Allahumma ameen. I want to share some interesting tidbits that the topic of the Prophet is a shoreless ocean. And in fact, there's more than one narration that we have from students and scholars and teachers of hadith. That say, I only entered this science. I only made this my life goal to study this topic so I can increase in saying Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam because the blessings for that are immense. So if we get out of this podcast, inshallah, there's so much that we want to discuss about our beloved Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, his sunnah, what it means and its application. But even before that, the fact that we're about to say Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam tens of times, that you're about to listen to it, the blessing for that is immense. Just one story, it was narrated that the great companion Ubay ibn Ka'b who came to Rasulullah and he said how much of my prayer meaning my dua specifically should I devote to saying 
Allahumma salli wa sallim ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Peace and blessings be upon you. Because he taught us that before you start a dua, you praise Allah, then you send peace and blessings upon him. And you end it similarly by praising Allah and sending peace and blessings upon him. That makes the dua much likely, much more likely to be accepted and for your request to be granted. So he's asking the Prophet Obayim Ka'ab, how much of my dua should I devote before I get into what I want, the meat of the dua? Oh Allah, help me, oh Allah, save me, cure me, so on and so forth. The Prophet said, it's up to you. It's optional. You know that it's something good as you wish. He said, what about one-tenth or one-fifth? Right, he started with a fraction. And Rasulullah each time told him, that is good, but the more you do, the better. He never disapproved. He said, that's all great. The more, the better. And he increased the fraction. One-fifth, one-fourth, one-third, half. And each time Rasulullah responded the same. So then he said, he thought for a second, he concluded, what if I, instead of making any dua, any request, all I sit, do is sit there and say, oh Allah, send peace and blessings upon Muhammad wasallam." So the Prophet ﷺ told him, Your sins would all be forgiven then, and all your worries would be appeased. Allah will take care of everything. SubhanAllah. So we're about to embark on a bit of time here, and the least we're getting, if we zone out out of all this information, or if it doesn't stick, at least we're blessed to say for minutes at a time his name, and then say, وسلم, peace and blessings be upon him, and we're reaping all of that reward. So that's just the very beginning of it. Just saying his name, mentioning him, we benefit and we get praised and blessings from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what other creation does has that blessing, has the honor only Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? You know, that same narration after uh, one of our, uh, we're doing halakat, uh, halakat at uh, Quran school. And one of our teachers told us that narration. And Ever since then, I was like, you know, I got to make it a priority, even if it's just, you know, 10 salawat you send upon the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa right, to like do that, right, because of that narration, how powerful it is and how how it was like, wow, something is very simple to do, right, and you may overlook it like, ah, I could do something else or let me get up or we do istighfar, but it's like, you know, it, to add that with that is, is such an amazing and powerful thing. You know, one thing I want to ask you, game Brother changer. Muhammad, if you, you know, what you say? I just said it's a game changer, 100%. Man, it's a very, it's a very powerful thing. One thing I want to ask, you know, you brought up who else in creation could, uh, could uh, has this honor, right? Just you know, may, some people may know, some people may may not know. But you know, can you go into like the linguistics of the meaning of the name Muhammad and also the meaning of the name Ahmed, which is also another name of the Prophet Yeah, definitely. Um, and this is actually tied to his very name, that when he was born. His father had passed away before his birth, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So his grandfather said, I chose to name him Muhammad because I felt that he would have honor. He would be honored. And Muhammad, a lot of times we say, we translate it as the one who is praised. But that's Mahmud. So we have Mahmud, we have Muhammad, we have Ahmed. All of these are Hamad, right? They're Hamid. They have very similar meanings. They come from the word Hamida, which means to praise. Hamida means to mention someone's good qualities. So if I say that you are strong, you are brave, I'm doing hamd of you. That's why we say alhamdu. What do we say in salah? Alhamdu lillah. All, if, you, if we really think about it, all good qualities that I have, they're not intrinsic. They're from Allah in the first place. Any good qualities I may see in nature or in a tree or in some kind of successful goal that I admire, it's where did it actually come from? Who blessed it to success? Who gave it the ability to succeed or to be beautiful, to be beneficial? It was Allah. 
So that's why we remind ourselves several times a day, at least since all praise belongs to Allah. So with that being said, his name, Muhammad, the way that its syntax is, means, sallallahu alayhi wa the one who is continually praised. He is permanently praised all the time. In the heavens and in the earth. At all timings. There's a very interesting video. I encourage you to check out, uh, inshallah. If you go on YouTube and search the Adhan time zones, you may have seen it, where it shows you that when the Adhan, adhan or the, the, the Adhan, the call to prayer, goes off in one time zone, anywhere in the world, before it ends, there's another Adhan going off because of the way time works, right? That the sun is moving. So Salah is here. You know, we have, for example, New York, safe. Uh, Aisha just came in a short while ago at 8.30 or so. If you move on to a little bit further west, just to Pennsylvania, Isha might be coming in 10 minutes after us, or 20. And then a little bit further, another 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's like that with constantly as you go across the earth. And when he came, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he was the most praised still, but in the heavens. But now even on earth, because there's not a moment that passes except someone. In Adhan is saying, Ashadu Anna Muhammad Rasulullah. Someone in Tashahud is saying, Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Someone in a lecture is saying, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So he became the eternally praised on heavens, in the heavens and the earth in a way that no other human being ever reached. So even his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, intended for him some honor or felt that there would be some praise, but he had no idea that Allah was going to make him the most eternally praised human being ever, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wow, subhanAllah. You know, it makes me think of uh, Surah... Uh, uh, I can never pronounce it all the way. Inshirah. I always have troubles uh, uh, saying the name. But it it's makes also me think called Ashar. Ashar is easier. That's the other name yeah. for it. Astaghfirullah. So Inshirah, it's called both, but Ashar is easier. So <laughs> Yeah, that's the way. But I always think about that uh, ayat. A'udhu Billahi Minashaitan Rajeem. Wa rafa'ana lak dhikra. Right? Like, yes. and we raised your reputation for you high. Like, we elevated you. And other ayat, of course, that uh, uh, talks about how uh, even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying he sends his praises upon the Prophet, right? And it's like, subhanAllah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's like, subhanAllah, like, for one person to have this much praise. And it's like, who is this person, right? And I think that's a great segue to really get into it. So, please, Brother Muhammad, talk to us. When we say the sunnah, right? Because... You know, in our modern times, we have a lot of movements, a lot of different people. Everybody says they're alul sunnah wal jamaah, right? We're alul sunnah wal jamaah. We're upon the sunnah. This person says they're upon the sunnah. But please tell us, what is the sunnah exactly? Yeah. That's an excellent question to start with. The very beginning of what is it? Since everyone's saying, let's follow it. I'm a part of it. I'm, you know, my teachings are, or the teachings that I follow are what's actually the sunnah. So what is the sunnah? So we could then analyze teachings or movements or actions. In the most simplest terms or the most basic definitions, the sunnah is basically everything about Rasulullah That's the simplest and most general definition. Anything that has to do with Rasulullah is considered sunnah. So his teachings, his wordings, uh, records of how he looked, records of what he did, his worship, all of that is, in, that is the most general definition. The sunnah is anything that has to do with Rasulullah So that's a very basic definition. As we'll see, that could change depending on, on different things. But that's in the most basic level is anything to do with Rasulullah his story, his teaching, his worship, his physical description, all of that is considered sunnah in the most general definition. 
Mm, very interesting. Very interesting. Now, linguistically, does the sunnah, like, does it mean something linguistically? Yeah, definitely. So a lot of the words that we have, and it's because they're Arabic in nature, they had an original meaning that people understood just plain language. And Islam added a spiritual dimension or an added dimension as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saw fit. So in this case, sunnah would literally mean a path. So it could be a physical path, a path that leads somewhere. So if I take a certain path from you know New York to New Jersey, and this is my path. This is how Muhammad goes to New Jersey. That's my sunnah. It reaches a goal. And it was especially given uh, a name that this person has a sunnah. It feels like important. Because everyone walks places and not all their places that they go are significant. But if I, for example, like I just said, I have a significant way of reaching New Jersey faster. Right? I avoid some kind of traffic. I do some, which is not possible in New York unless you, you work with the gin, of course. But uh <laughs> With that being said, uh, let's say that I had some kind of way of, of getting to New Jersey faster and it was perfectly halal and other people start to use it, it would become a sunnah. No, do this sunnah, follow this path because it leads a goal better or to a goal better or faster. So that is especially how the word was used to, a, to, to refer to a path, especially one that was followed and that led to a purpose or some kind of benefit. So for example, this is... Uh, uh, and it'd also be used to refer to like regiments, things that people did. So this is my sunnah for working out. This is so and so sunnah for running a, a a tribe. So people would follow it because it would be efficient, because it would be worth following. So it could be literal, like a physical path that leads somewhere, or some physical regiment that I eat or, or work out with, and people follow it. Or it could mean uh, something metaphysical or metaphorical, which is the way that he holds himself or the way that he asks. Which is Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says this Himself in Surah Al Surah Al Anfal. He says, Allah subhanahu says in Surah Anfal, tell the people, tell the disbelievers, O Muhammad, وسلم, if they cease, if they desist from what they used to do, Allah will forgive all of it. It's that simple. Just stop. Stop what you're doing for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa and that's it. He, that's all He asks of you. You don't have to. Do much more besides that when you repent. Stop what you're doing for the sake of Allah. Don't go back to it. And then he'll forgive it. He tells them that's how simple the equation is. And here's the part that relates to us. But if they return, they go back to their disbelief. They go back to their barbarism and their oppression. Then tell them the sunnah of those before you has already come to pass. Meaning look at them. They did exactly that. They refused and they rejected their prophets. And then what happened? So don't follow that sunnah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying. So that's the linguistic definition, which is a path, a way, whether it's physical or not, you know, physical, whether it's literal or metaphorical, a way of doing things or a path of going somewhere that people end up following. Mashallah, very interesting, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's like, so it's basically a way of life, right? It's one of those words that is very encompassing, kind of like Dean, correct? Yeah. It's just very inclusive yeah. of many different aspects that make the experience, the human experience. So is it safe to say that you would say the sunnah is like, um, I don't want to say the deen of Muhammad, but it's his way of life pretty much, right? Yeah. 100% sallallahu alayhi wa is the way he held himself, the way he worshipped. In the general definition, as we come you know, across other definitions in different contexts, we'll see that that could change. But in the most general sense, yeah, it's everything about him. It's the whole deen, his whole worship and his whole mannerisms, sallallahu alayhi wa that's all his sunnah. 
You, and you know what's interesting about that that you say, in, in, like contextually, right? Because there's other aspects I want to ask. But before we get to that, one aspect I do want to ask is if someone was sitting, right, and you're meeting them, and let's say they're a new Muslim or even a, somebody who's born Muslim, either or, right? And they said, okay, well, what is the difference between the sirah and the sunnah? Is the sirah, like, what, what are the two difference between the two? You know, you hear that those two words a lot, right? Yeah. No, 100%. You hear them mentioned uh, sometimes synonymously, sometimes or very often together, the sira is more of a focus on the biographical details of Rasulullah life. So it's more of a, a focus on biography. And a lot of the reasons why certain definitions are synonymous is because in the beginning of Islam, they're either used synonymously or sometimes they were just compiled together. So someone who, you know, paper was scarce and not a lot of people wrote, especially in the beginning. So if someone was going to write a book, they were kind of to do it, kind of kind of about to do it about everything. So they may put the sirah, they may put also sunnah of how to pray, they may also put like some aqidah, some theology in there, because they didn't have the leisure of writing several books, right? It, so a lot of times that would end up happening, and the differentiation and the separation happened in later generations. So so that's part of their reasoning. But in any case, sirah was more referred to the biography, biographical details. Rasulullah in sequence, he was born here from this tribe. This is what happened next. This, you know, he was his wet nurse was Halima Sadeh. He lived there for X amount of years. He came back to Mecca. The splitting of his chest, followed by first signs that he would be a prophet throughout the next decades. Then he revelation begins at 40, so on and so forth. So it is a sequential biography of Rasulullah and all the details that would be applicable. While the Sunnah is more general, it could encompass a lot of things. Someone could be writing a book specifically about how he ate. Someone could write be a book of how he spoke or his general manners of sitting with his family. Someone could write a book about his worship, and people have, right? Someone could write an entire book about the hadith where he praised companions, everything he said about companions ever. These are all considered books of sunnah that are hyper-focused on something else, or it could be a general book of sunnah, which is all the hadith that I compiled or such and such person compiled, he makes his own book of sunnah. So it's a very, very wide term. Wasira is generally always biographical. No one's going to tell you this is a book of Sirah and then you'll find some like rulings of prayer in there. No, it's most likely going to be a cover-to-cover biography of, of his life. So I said. You know, it, it makes me think of, uh, when you say, like, thinking of the, uh, like, uh, a hadith about Salah, right? We come to the factor of Sunnah and, like, Fara'id and different uh, rulings as far as the Sharia goes itself, right? Because, you know, it's tiered. Please explain to somebody, to someone who... Uh, uh, Maybe a new Muslim or somebody who was a born Muslim about the difference between what is Sunnah and what is Farid. As far as the Sharia goes, so, like fiqh. So this would go into, now we're getting into contextual meanings of, of the word Sunnah. Now it differs based on topic. So like I was saying earlier in the beginning of Islam, the scholars didn't have a lot of learning material. And a lot of the works that they did, especially in the beginning, were exclusively for the uh, erudite class for the scholarly academic class. So it's not like the average person would pick up a book. So for that reason, they became uh, more, it, it developed in this fashion. So later on, people differentiated definitions based on the context. Because when you read this work, you'd read the same work of the same scholar. And you would see that he's saying, this is okay, you don't have to do it because it's sunnah. And then you'll find in that same Scholars work, he'll say whoever leaves the sunnah 
they're not they're, they're you know they're, they're they're on the verge of being excommunicated what happened mm-hmm. you thought you say it's okay to leave sunnah and it's not because it's different context and only when people separated and realized he was talking about a different science here in a different category so mm-hmm. when you go for example let's start with something like theology aqidah mm-hmm. the scholars of theology all throughout history when they use the word sunnah they meant this is what Rasulullah Sallallahu believed, period. That's all they mean. Mm-hmm. So in the opposite of that is what? Shirk, disbelief, right? Evil things. If you don't believe what Allah, if you don't believe what Rasulullah believed and taught about Allah, about his names and attributes, about, you know, the hereafter, where are you getting your information then? Mm-hmm. He's the only source of that information, right? So when the, when the scholars of theology, Aqidah, speak about sunnah, the only alternative is bid'ah and kufr disbelief or wrong beliefs there's no other option but now when we get to fiqh books so mm. aqidah talks about theology what do we believe right it's a much more rigid it doesn't change according to time or place it is what allah said about himself and his angels and the hereafter and his prophets period mm. when we get to fiqh now fiqh deals with what uh you talk asking me right now a rhetorical question oh yeah, yeah. it deals with the yeah, yeah. uh general rulings as far as the muslim life goes right how to live your life how to yeah. make wudu how to pray salah how to do zakat different aspects of the muslim uh, experience just the law of the muslim life physical active things that we implement the law as you said the do's and don'ts of everyday life whether it comes to worship eating and drinking so on and so forth in this context now the scholars they use the word sunnah to refer to it is not obligation is not obligatory hmm. it is now juxtaposed with the idea that there's certain actions that you must do meaning if you do not do them allah will punish you you're liable for punishment rather because right some people could be forgiven they can make up for it but the basic is you're liable for punishment by not doing this action and if you do it allah will reward you because you fulfilled your obligation you fulfilled your role as the servant of allah subhanahu wa by obeying him in this fashion the sunnah now are things that Allah wants you to do more. He is commanding you. He wants you to do them, but not in an obligatory sense. If you are not to do them, he will not punish you. You just missed out on extra rewards that he wants you to have because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means well and wishes well for us more than we do for ourselves. But you chose not to and he gave you that option to choose in this category. When we go now to Sira books, Sunnah has the most general definition that we already covered, which is in Arabic. It's a very famous statement. مَا أُضِيفَ لِلنَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمْ مِنْ قَوْلٍ أَوْ فِعْلٍ أَوْ تَقْرِيرٍ أَوْ صِفَةٍ خُلُقِيَّ أَوْ خَلْقِيَّ Which is a sentence to cover the generality of Sunnah, which is how it's used in Sira books, biographical books, which is anything attributed to Rasulullah of actions or speech or approvals or characteristics, whether they are of his manners or of his physical person, this is all what we consider sunnah. That's the most general definition that you'll find in Sira books. Meaning what we said in the beginning, anything to do with Rasulullah. Anything that has to do with him, that's the sunnah. So in the Sira books, we have the most general definition. In the fiqh books, we're talking about people's actions, reward versus punishment. That's what we're focusing on. And then in the Aqidah books, we're talking about the belief that he taught and that he came with, not anything that came after that or was introduced. So you see the context does change drastically. No, it's very interesting to see the, the the difference, but it's also, you know, when you think about it, it's a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that there's some things, of course, Allah would prefer you, uh, and it's always best to live exactly, do your best to live exactly like the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, but of course, things are in context, maybe there are certain sunnahs you wouldn't be able to enact where you are based on location 
or maybe you have certain things that are blockages as far as the uh that would stop you as far as the fit goes but it, it's just it's a blessing still right alhamdulillah that we have the sunnah but we also have the basics to help us still get our acts of ibadah in and still collect some type of ajr now as far as the sunnah goes right and this is one thing i think a lot of people don't know the sunnah of the prophet is not exclusively his actions alone it's also inclusive of his companions could you please speak to that point then because you know i was speaking to my sheikh about that the other day because i never knew that right i never knew that the actions of the companions also encompasses this but then you know he started talking about if you look at a uh, uh, sunnah you could say of umar radiallahu anhu like the tarawa install uh, instituting the tarawa prayer back into for the muslims or the uh, sunnah you could say of uh, uthman bin affan radiallahu anhu like the quran compilation of the quran itself could you please speak to that point a little more about the actions of the companions being a part of the sunnah as well? Yeah, I, I love the question so much because it is a disservice to the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad to disregard his companions. We call him the greatest teacher, right? We call him the leader of mankind's teachers. Wouldn't he have the greatest students? The ones who cared the most, Mashallah. who paid the most attention, who the, the One of the companions was asked before he converted Tell me how they are with him He said he doesn't spit And then it lands on the ground One of them will catch it When he makes wudu It doesn't drip on the ground One of them will catch it When he speaks None of them move When he commands They rush to fulfill it These were the descriptions that non-Muslims saw And were awed so to come around and say, like, you know, and, and, and I know people come from different angles. Some of them are honestly trying to understand, like, where can I place the Sahaba's words? But other people come from the sense of, like, who, you know, why is their interpretation so important? Or why should I look to what they have done when I can look at the hadith directly? A complete disservice to the greatest teacher to ever walk amongst men, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, To disregard his students that he himself said, Alaykum bi sunnati, I command you, follow my sunnah. Wa sunnat al and follow those who follow me, my successors, my students. The ones that I told you that a woman came and asked him وسلم, a question. He said, come back later. She says, what if you're not here? He said, go ask Abu Bakr. Right? That he said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has throughout history angels that he appoints to inspire people with the correct decision in certain times, especially in difficulty. And in my ummah, if, that, if they still exist, if this process still continues, Umar for sure is one of them. Directly telling us that these people are, they graduated. He's handing them the diplomas before he died. They know what I'm doing. They know what I'm all about. They know this better than anybody. Look at, telling you directly, look at them, copy them. You know, he said, the best generations is my generation. Meaning these people around me, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Then those who come after, then those who come after, highlighting those three first three generations. These are all his words, So if we don't look to them, if we don't consider what they've done, if we don't look at how they understood his words, then we are pretending to uh, have a better understanding than the people that he directly approved of. We are deluded into thinking, for example, that we will be better guided than the people that he stamped his approval on, which comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? He's not speaking freely. He's not saying these are my friends and I and they, you know, I just like them. He's saying they did it right. They put their he said, Don't curse my companions. Because if one of you gave a mountain of gold in charity, it wouldn't equal one handful or half of that of one of them. 
because of their sincerity is through the roof. These people uh, gave up life and limb. One of the people came to um, to one of the Sahaba, I don't recall his name at the moment, but he saw him giving a lecture and he said, Glad tidings. How lucky are these two eyes that saw Rasulullah? If we were there, we would have done and we would have said and we would have. We would have. How lucky. And then the companion got very angry. So the other people that were around him, the students, the tabi'in, said, The guy said good words. Like, why would you be upset at that? Then he said, What's wrong with people? That they wish to be present. In a situation that Allah made them absent. He decided that you're not there. Don't, don't wish for another time. Don't wish for another place. Don't wish for another ethnicity. You don't know how it would have happened. Which is what he said next. He said, we fought our brothers. People told us, all you have to do is say you're no longer interested and you'll be let alone. And we didn't budge. You don't know what that was like. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed, he said, that other people had to go through this for you to be a Muslim today. So say alhamdulillah. That you didn't have to fight your family. That you didn't have to choose. And of course, I, I, I applaud and I commend and I look up to my convert brothers and sisters, the revert brothers and sisters. They can relate to this. They know what it's like to have to tear a part of you out to be a Muslim. While many of us have no such feelings, alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed us. He's saying don't wish to be through what others have been through. When Allah chose to put them through it and have you reach Islam. And he said you exited your mother's wombs, he said. Not knowing anything except La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Say Alhamdulillah. It didn't cost you life and limb. So that's that's what the Sahaba were. That's what they went through. That was their exam. That you know that was their 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 tradition. That was their Sunnah to do that in following the Sunnah of Rasulullah. In addition, one more thing I'd like to say is that the earliest books of Sunnah, the compilations of Imam Malik and Imam Ahmed, and these first scholars who first put the Sunnah together, as we'll discuss, these people always included the sayings of the Sahaba. They always included how the Sahaba interpreted these things, especially in absence of a direct hadith. So, of course, when they had a direct hadith, they still included what the Sahaba did, but they put that first. But in absence of a direct hadith, they'd put what the Sahaba did first because they said, what did they say? Where else would the Sahaba get this? Why else would they do this? There's no, and these people witnessed their grandchildren, so they knew what it was like. They saw the atmosphere. They said, there's no way that these people will... Engage in this action, speak on behalf of Allah, tell people to pay zakah this way or pray this way, except that they saw it from Rasulullah. So we'll take it as evidence. You know, that's a, a very uh, amazing uh, point that you know that we've talked about, but hearing that, like, I never heard that narration before of that companion saying that. And you know, it makes me think, you know, a lot of the times us in modern time, we're like, oh yeah, you know, if we were there, we would stand up, we would fight, oh no, this would happen. But you know, that's the same thing. Um, Something that either my sheikh or somebody in that gathering said, like, you never know what you would have done in that situation, right? Maybe we would have been the people who supported Abu Jahl, right? I mean, astaghfirullah, like, may Allah protect us, right? But maybe we would have been from amongst those people who are kufar, who are against the Prophet, وسلم, right? Because when you're in a society, to make a stance like that, right, very few will take that risk and opportunity, especially in a place that's volatile, that you can be killed, that you can be attacked, that you can be hurt right it wasn't all uh 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 roses and nice and we all do uh, uh tawaf together in the kaaba no like muslims we had to pray but we had to hide you look think about sumaya and how she was murdered like she was murdered you know these these things happen so i could see 
That's a hobby thinking about. If you really knew what happened, <laughs> you would never ask to have any of that, right? You're a part of this, what you could say, like trust fund generation. You're here. You get to learn sunnah free. It's, uh, 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 the haq is everywhere. You get to be a Muslim, like alhamdulillah, right? So you shouldn't look to that. But, you know, a lot of the times we do do that as uh, human beings, you know. And I think it is out of love for the Prophet, sallam, right? Because we definitely love him and we would want to support him. But you never know in the context. So saying alhamdulillah about where you are in life is definitely very key. Definitely very key. It's, it's all about knowledge. Like you, you, you love Rasulullah, so you have to know what he was all about before you can defend him. So you don't end up hurting his legacy. Um, the, 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 the interesting point about that Sahabi is that he mentioned something that you just said, which is, I, he said, I saw people who saw him. I saw people who were there. You're, you love my eyes. I saw people who saw him too. And they didn't go well. He's talking about Abu Jahl and these guys. He said, I saw people who saw him. Who, you're wishing to see him? Well, I was there and other people saw him too. And they heard him and they sat next to him. And guess what? They're in the hellfire now. So don't think that just because you would have been there. It's finally exactly like you just said. He was referring to Abu Jahl and others. Seeing him didn't help them. So say alhamdulillah that you, uh, it didn't cost you. Like, as you said, becoming Muslim back then was all else. There was no perks. There was absolutely no perks. You had to hand in so many of your perks to be a Muslim. Man, like you, you, you literally traded your, your your status, your lifestyle. I mean, just so many things, just because you believe in this. But it just goes to show that, like you said, the sincerity of the Sahaba to not care, sacrifice all of these things just because they see this is the truth. You know, mashallah. And you know, it, it, so let's like we've talked about what the Sunnah means. We've talked about its connection. We talked about it between that and Sira. We talked about the Prophet وسلم, and the uh, companions. So now we get to this portion. We've, let's say we left Medina. The Prophet has passed away وسلم. We get to the first few generations of the Sahaba and then the Tabi'een and Tabi'een Tabi'een and Tabi'een. So how was the chronicling of the Sunnah? Can you talk about how that compilation was started and what that process looked like? How did they go about saying, okay, we need to detail this, this, and this, and have it packaged? Because, for example, if I'm not mistaken, hadith weren't actually recorded till after the death of the Prophet, correct? Or am I wrong about that? Yeah. Generally, yes. There's a little bit of a caveat. I'd say it's correct with the asterisks. So it's a little bit of a long uh, trajectory, but we'll summarize it just for, for the sake of time. As you said, the Prophet, he teaches regularly, right? Um, in addition, whenever there's new revelation, he shares that with them immediately. He recites it to the Sahaba. So, and when there was new revelation, he would contact, he would summon certain companions uh, to write down this revelation. So that was very few companions who knew how to read and write. That general society was estimated to have maybe an under 10% literacy rate. So 9 out of 10 people don't know how to read or write. So writing had a utility, but was not the major form of compilation or transmission of information that was done orally. Right in that society for centuries before paper was formally introduced and writing became the norm. And of course, Islam changed that exponentially. One of the only uh, empires or, or movements to do so, to increase literacy and, and promote it and, and cause it on such a wide scale in this fashion. But in any case, that's a little bit tangent, tidbit. But, um, so he's receiving revelation. So I said to him, he calls Umar ibn Khattab. He calls Ali ibn Abi Talib. He calls Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan. He calls other companions, anhum, may Allah be pleased with all of them. New revelation has come down, write it down. Surah Al-Mulk, Surah Al-Rahman, Surah Al-Araf, whatever it may be. He notices that when he's teaching 
separately from the revelation from Quran that some companions are writing down his sayings. Rasulullah said this today on whatever animal bones or dried leather or dried palm fronds that they had, right? Because this was their writing materials. He tells them to stop for several reasons. One is the companions, the, the, the scholars mentioned that he explicitly said it might compete with the Quran. We have a less than 10% literacy. People mm-hmm. later might see this and not understand that he did not, that this wasn't Quran. Because from what they understood is that when Quran happens, he calls people over and they write it. Now there's a danger of that going on because Quran is live. It's still being revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know when it's going to finish. There's certain abrogations that happens, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala changed things around as he saw fit with certain rulings, with certain revelations. So the Quran is being revealed live. And now we have this other outside information that's also coming out of Rasulullah's mouth, right? Because they're coming from the same place, which is Rasulullah that could that's also on the same topic, which is religious and about Allah. So there's a danger of it being confused with other, uh, with, with the other revelation. By the time he dies, وسلم, we have concrete evidence from many narrations that many Sahaba had hadith compilations, small. So that shows that he didn't outright forbid it, but at a certain time period when there was a worry that would be conflated with the Quran, he did tell people to stop. But by the end of his life, it seems as, according to some scholars have said, that he allowed its rewriting, especially when the Quran was completely revealed, and especially when it's people's personal compilation, right? It's not something they're spreading or teaching, it's just something, someone like Ali or Umar or Abu Huraira, they're going to know the difference between Quran and not. And now that he has passed away and revelation is over, they can explicitly say, this is my hadith compilation, this isn't the Quran. So that's phase one. Phase two now is the Sahaba and their children as they grow older. There's very little need to uh, compile it in a grand fashion as we have today, which is huge compilation, Sahih Hadith versus non-Sahih Hadith and whatnot. Because the oral tradition still dominates. There's very little writing that exists from time of Sahaba, like I said, certain personal compilations amongst the Tabi'in also. But what happens is towards the end of the first generation of Tabi'in, uh, as the oldest Sahaba begin to die, as we know, the fitna happens. Certain civil strife happens amongst the later generations, especially that spills over to an animosity against the companions. It was initiated and propagated and promoted and grown by non-companions, mostly non-companions. And the few companions that ended up amongst the ranks were not of the most notable ones uh, by far. But th- those people who started the fitna against Uthman and then later Ali were all non-companions, mostly non-Muslims from the frontiers. The point of me bringing that up is that the later generation said when that happened, then we told people, We're four people who just share information. Where did you get this from? Abu Huraira. Where did he, you know, where, no one would say where did he get it from, right? Because it came from Rasulullah Someone else shares a hadith or teaches something about Salah. Where did you get this from? I got it from Abu Huraira's student. That was also acceptable for a lot of people full stop because they knew these people they were famous Hmm. and they became imams in their own rights but towards the end of that generation now this fitna happened now we know that people think that islam in its correct understanding meant denouncing and attacking and even killing people like uthman and ali and muawiyah and amr ibn al-as that's their understanding of islam so the 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 tabi'in said when people when we realize there's people amongst us who think islam teaches this and this is the correct understanding then we told everybody you need to tell me exactly where you got it from in succession until it reaches Rasulullah So you heard it from your uncle, that's great. Who did he hear it from? Who did he hear it from? The companion, give me the, you know, get get to Rasulullah from that companion, then I'll believe because that's a traceable chain that I can follow. 
if you tell me that you got it from the student of Abu Hurairah who lived in Medina, and I know that you lived in Iraq your whole life, it's not possible, right? You're, you're making that up. Or it could be a real hadith, but you didn't hear it, which means I reject it. I'll take it from someone who really heard it. So this was the first advent of people beginning what we call riwayah, the chains of narration, right? They began to say, follow the chain back to Rasulullah So I heard it from Abdullah, who heard it from third person, until we get to the source, which in this case would be Rasulullah And then it was at that point, that very next generation now, at the end of the first century Hijri, where the great-grandson of Umar, who was Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, right, the governor of Medina, then later the Khalifa of the Muslims, who ordered the first compilation from Ibn Shahib al-Zuhri, one of the scholars of the Tabi'in, the direct, so this direct, Ibn Shahib al-Zuhri is of the direct students of the students of his companions, and he commands him and others to write the first compilation. Write me a set of hadith that I can use to refer to, to teach people from, and that was the first hadith compilation with narrations going back to Rasulullah and from there, the science spread over the next 200 years to the compilations that we're using today. They stem from that time. Bukhari and Muslim and Tirmidhi and Nasa'i. These compilations happened in the very next generation now, about 50, 60, 50 to 100 years later, and they've reached us thus far. Wow, mashallah. Now, the science of Hadith, I've heard, is uh, it's a very tough science. You know, I have a friend, people I know who are like studying, and it says it's a very rough science. Can you explain what makes the science of hadith very tough? What makes it what it is very rigorous in terms of its study? And also, can you please go back and explain a little more about the process of the verification of the isnad of the chain of, okay, this person, this person, how hadiths were chosen and some weren't chosen, you know? If that's a big topic, though, we could just stick with the yeah. first question. But yeah, I'm just curious. I want people to know, inshallah. Because it's so commonly used in, in, in like you know people's talks and they hear a lot of it, I think it's a great question. It is a lot deeper than we would have the time for. And uh, mm-hmm. feel free to stop me if I'm if I'm uh, if I go down a rabbit hole as I tend to do, uh, and, and I think I'm in the right place. Mm-hmm. But um, the basics of it, from building building on what we've said, is at that point people needed to make an isnad to prove that they heard it from Rasulullah or that it comes from him. They didn't hear it, but. A generation or two or three ago, right, 50 to 100 years ago, Rasulullah said this. That's what they needed to prove. So to bounce back 100 years is not that hard. You don't need 100 people, right? You just need three or four generations. So most chains were like five, you know, to 10 people long. Um, this is just arbitrary numbers. Don't, you know, take them with a pinch of salt. So at that point, most chains are not too long. If we were to make a chain right now from a hadith that I heard, going back to Rasulullah we'd fall short, right? There'll be a place where I can't tell you anymore. I heard it from my teacher. I might know his teacher's name and that's it. I don't know. I can't go back anymore 14th centuries or 15th centuries. But I don't need to do that because Bukhari did it. In his time, he went back four generations or five and proved that Rasulullah said this. And it was so rigorous that a hadith that start with something that where someone says, I heard Rasulullah they're placed on a higher status than the hadith that says Rasul said this. They even look at the words that the hadith started with. If someone says, I heard or I saw, that hadith bumps, gets bumped up in its usage and its, its, its priority and its hierarchy. As opposed to Rasul just said this, because that's a lot more neutral. Could have heard him yourself. Someone else could have told you. Someone else could have summarized. When you say, I heard, that's most likely word for word. So those hadith mm-hmm. get bumped up, for example. When a chain has, for example, we have a hadith where the, the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas 
He's the one who tells us the hadith of the Prophet, one of the, one of the hadith of the Prophet coming to Medina. Why is that problematic? It's because when the Prophet came to Medina, Abdullah Abbas was like two years old. He was just born. Mm. And he became Muslim later and joined the Muslims later. That's not problematic in that we question the authenticity because he's a companion. He wouldn't report this except he heard it. The, the conclusion is he heard it from another companion. And we make that conclusion automatically because we know who Ibn Abdullah, Abdullah ibn Abbas was, the status Rasulullah gave him. But with that being said, if we have another hadith where a companion now says, but I was there and I saw Rasulullah come to Medina, we would bump that up because we know he was physically there while Ibn Abbas, for example, was a child. So the hadith science works like that. It's very, very detailed. They look at the words the Sahaba started with. They look at their ages. They look at the, the, the status Rasulullah gave them. A hadith that Umar says about something might take precedence over someone else because of who Umar was, right? So, so on and so forth. It's a very, very intricate science that looks at so many different things. For a lot of people, the difficulties in memorizing names and biographies because every single person in the chain, we need their name. We need where they studied. We need the time period that they spent in each city. We need what their teachers said about them. We need what their opponents said about them. We need all the hadith they ever compiled before we pass a grade. If any of this stuff is missing, that narrator you'll see in books of hadith might get bumped down. If several other narrators of hadith bump him down, we no longer take the hadith. Right? This is an oversimplification, but it shows you that they are so strict. What are some things that would knock you off, for example, any lies? This person ever lied in their life. They're done. People don't take the hadith. Right? Um, they were proven to have said a lie and people caught them in it. Their hadith is denounced. They committed major sins. Right? Someone who's, God forbid, openly sinning or vulgar or drinking, their hadith wouldn't be taken. You have uh, the, the, the analysis of their process of seeking knowledge. Who are their first teachers? If none of these things could be traced, the least that could be said about them is their majhur, their unknowns, which means hadith get pushed aside. We do, we, we need some corroborative evidence. Some teach, some some scholars like Bukhari were so strict that one time he traveled a whole distance. And they, by the way, if you read their biographies, they traveled thousands of miles to hear one hadith that someone told them you have never heard this one before. Or you heard it before, but it's a different chain than yours. It goes through different people. They'd go. And one time Bukhari was at the end of such a journey, coming across a man's farm that supposedly had hadith he ever heard. And he sees this man calling back his camels for the day. Interesting tangent story. I saw this happen once when I was in Saudi Arabia. I was just stopping on the highway. There was a bunch of camels. So I thought, let me pet them because it's camels on the side of the road. And um, and their owner was there. The, not their owner, their shepherd. I could barely understand anything he was saying. Like his dialect was very hard to understand. But while we were talking, it was me and some friends. I said, by the way, there's, there's a camel mad farts, like 100 meters, like in three, 100 yards, right? I know we're in America here. 100 yards away. So I was like, that thing is really far. You got to go catch it. He, he raises his mouth like this and he goes, <laughs> he does the most <laughs> inhuman noise I ever heard, right? He straight up camel talk. The thing turns around and starts coming back. <laughs> and I was like, teach me this language. I need this power. But no. <laughs> In all seriousness, so um, so the guy was doing that, right? I don't know if he made the noise. Could have, you know, if you, you could add into the story, but I don't know. The story doesn't have it. But he's basically calling his camels in for the day, and one of them doesn't want to come, so he pretends to have something for it. Like, hey, I got some camel treats or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And when it comes, the guy doesn't have anything, so he just grabs it by its nose and says, got you, come inside. So Bukhari, after the end of his journey, God knows how long he was traveling, says, I came here for hadith, but this guy doesn't even have the integrity 
to not lie to an animal, to not do this properly, I'm not interested. He's dropped in my eyes. He's not, I don't, I don't want to hear it. You don't have that integrity. You've lost the standard that the carriers of hadith must have. Imam Malik would be teaching a lesson. He'd go inside his house, change into a new outfit for the hadith class, saying this is the words of Rasulullah I got to teach them there's a higher standard, even how I look when I teach them, sallallahu alayhi wa So they, 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 you know, the, the status of the Prophet's words and the status of the, the, the teachers and the seekers of hadith gave it will show you there's no way. There's no way that people played around with it. And when they did, they were caught. There's great scholars of other sciences, but the scholars of hadith say they were excelled in tafsir. They excelled in fiqh. No one takes hadith from them. Because they didn't meet the standard of the hadith scholars. So that just means they can't sit down and teach narrations. Because that has to go back through the chain. That has to have the isnad as you said. That has to have that standard. But everything else they can be qualified to teach. So it was a very very rigorous science. And so many people. Orientalists included. Have looked at this and they said there's no such thing. As the science of hadith in any other nation. We've never seen anything like this. It's something that boggles people's minds as led people to Islam. The concept of how we make sure and how the, especially the scholars of the past leading up to the second century Hijri, leading up to around 250 Hijri. The, what they did to ensure that these words were said and taught and happened with Rasulullah is incomparable and irreplicable, irreplicable across all nations and times and places. SubhanAllah. It, it, like... This sounds deeper than CIS Miami or one of these crime shows. You know, it's very <laughs> investigative. It's thorough. It's it's beautiful though because it helps preserve uh, something very sacred, uh, the way of life, uh, the uh, the Sunnah of the Prophet sallam, You know, just keeping that intact for somebody that is the most beloved of all of creation, right? That it just goes to show that. So you know, now, brother Muhammad, we're gonna we're gonna do a little. It's like a game, but it's not gonna be a game exactly, but it can be fun. So I'm gonna say some statements. And then what I want you to do is, you just tell me, how would you reply to that, right? Just some statements right, we can hear in modern day. I right. hope they're juicy and controversial. <laughs> so let's see. The first is, so if somebody told you, they said, to follow the sunnah of the Prophet is not, is, uh, people who say it's wajib, it's far, you have to follow it. If you don't, you're sinful, you're upon kufr. What would you say to somebody like that? If you don't follow the sunnah at all, you don't do anything of the sunnah, but you do the fara'id. So my first statement might be, um, calm down, like relax, <laughs> like take it easy for a second. Um, that's the general step we always want to take when we're talking about kufr, when we're talking about denouncing people. We always want to relax. There's different denounceable things. There's things that lead outside of Islam. There's things that excommunicate you by Allah before the community that he'll consider you no longer in the fold of his deen, of course. But with that being said, us as humans, as followers, as deficient ourselves, as our, our first step is to accuse our own knowledge, maybe it's deficient, right? So that's just like a general tidbit that I'd love to start with because we're quick to denounce people. That's something that we do too quickly as Muslims. We do too quickly as, you know, practicing Muslims, whatever that means, message goers. Uh, and it's something that is always worth highlighting, which is whenever you see someone that is doing something that is denounceable or that needs to be denounced, always, you know, use the brakes, take it easy. But with that being said, this statement is true. But in the context of what? If you abandon the sunnah, if you don't follow the sunnah, or if you do something against the sunnah, following the sunnah is a must, and abandoning it means you're a disbeliever. That sounds like the context of aqidah that we started with. That according to the scholars of aqidah, this sentence is 100% sound. 
Because the only alternative to the sunnah in belief is the belief of other nations or other movements or other religions. The sunnah in belief is not optional. We can't follow any other methods when it comes to believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except the sunnah of the Prophet and anything that's in line with that, right? There's certain uh, concepts of logic or whatever that don't contradict that, sure. But other than that, our belief system, especially about the unseen, about angels, about Allah, about the day of judgment, strictly from him, sallallahu there's no room for any other input. So I'd say that stu- that statement applies to the context of aqidah, but doesn't apply somewhere like fiqh. A man came to Rasulullah, a companion. And I want you to consider this, Abdullah, in your masjid, that a man comes up to the sheikh afterwards and he says, hey, sheikh, give me the five pillars of Islam. I heard there's something called five pillars. What are they? And you, you tell him what? The five pillars, right? Uh, shahada, salah, zakah, and so on. And he says, that's it. I don't want to ever hear you guys ask me to do anything else. Don't give me no books about what to do more, how to climb higher. If I hear a word besides these five pillars, I'm doing this. What would we say about someone like that? What would you think, Abdullah? If I'm thinking about the same hadith uh, you're talking about, then uh, <laughs> I know the answer. But if, I, if I've seen somebody like pretend, that... Pretend, yeah. pretend that yeah, you if didn't I know seen, the hadith and you're right. All right, if I seen somebody like that, I would look and be like, who who is this guy and why like why like why not like why not do any of the sunnah right like why just limit yourself why not collect more ajr right unless you so you are, seem uh, as lazy maybe yeah uh-huh. okay good so you seem maybe as lazy why don't you want more ajr you seem as you think you're gonna you think you're perfect like you you think that you're gonna do these things on such a high level you don't need more they're negative reactions this person needs to be told no 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 do more but you know how do you know the hadith as you said he came to Rasulullah he said what is Islam the Prophet said, on its most basic level, these five pillars. These are the must that everyone must do. Believe in Allah and His Prophet and profess that belief physically. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah. Ashhadu Muhammad Rasulullah Number two, the salah, zakah, fasting Ramadan, and hajj once in a lifetime. So he says, he told Rasulullah what we just said. I'm going to do these five. Don't ask me for a single penny after this. And he walked away. He said, that's all I'm doing. I accept Islam, but no more. Don't add number six, these five. And when he, when he left, the Prophet told everyone, if he is truthful, if he's sincere, if he does his best, he's good. He's set. So we see that this, the, the, this, this, that word sunnah, that statement, doesn't apply to the fiqh definition of sunnah, which is the actions you're not obliged to do. Allah held you to these five and everything that you know falls under them. So salah, you're talking about wudu, right? Facing the qibla, those are all obligations as well. Anything that leads you to these five and completes these five. But what about Sunnah prayers. If you never prayed a single one in your life, not a good idea, right? <laughs> but at the same t- same time, Allah didn't command them. You fulfilled the five prayers they command every single day properly. You're set. There's not a single salah that he'll say, "Where's this?" According to most scholars, right? So, according to the fiqh definition, that statement is not true. If you abandon the sunnah, not a good idea. Super dangerous, right? Not recommended, but not legible for punishment in front of Allah. Because he didn't make an obligation. So that statement would be true in some contexts, which is like aqidah, but not true in others. You know, it, it, what's beautiful about uh, what you just explained is it goes to show that as much as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves the Prophet sallallahu in the way, as much as we do, Allah is still showing that our uh, obligations to Allah supersedes everything, right? It's Allah first, then the Prophet sallallahu But yeah. Allah makes it in a way to where it's encouraged that if you want more, if you want to get higher and you want to enjoy more, you just collect this ajr, this barakah, to follow the way of the Prophet ﷺ and his sunnah and do these actions to 
increase uh, uh, in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? But you don't have to, right? You don't have to. But the next statement I want to say is, so what if about the opposite? What if somebody, you've seen a brother, every time we go to the masjid, right? This is a good example. If we go to the masjid, the brother never prays the the masjid, the two rakat, right? Just, you know, once you walk into the masjid, right? And then one day you go to the brother, you say, hey, brother, you know, we see you coming, but you never, you know, pray your two rakat. And the person said, ah, it's just sunnah, it's not far. What would you say to somebody like that who just waves it off? So now we have the other extreme, right? The opposite. You get these two people together, Abdullah, and you make them fight each other. That's what you do. <laughs> you tell them, like, hey, you guys duke it out, and you watch. Don't do that. I'm just kidding. Like, you know, just for people watching, I, I realize that sometimes uh, taking my advice with a pinch of salt always. But um, that'd be interesting, right? If they, I'd like these two guys if to sit and have, have dinner once. <laughs> see where it ends. conversation. <laughs> You would see them just arguing back and forth. Oh, I can see one guy being really charged and the other guy just like, eh. He'll be mellow, right? <laughs> one will be ice, yeah, one will be fire. <laughs> who knows? I'm curious. But subhanAllah, um, that's the other extreme, right? So you have people who are telling people, hey, these stuff are important and they're giving them, as imp- they are important, but they are giving them a higher status by forcing people to abide by them. While as we know, Islam was made for the lowest common denominator. It was made for the lowest common denominator by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. With that being said, he encourages to, to reach for the stars. But in its basic form, on the bare minimum, it's applicable to the even the least common denominator that has no time for anything else or no capacity to do anything else. But we shouldn't suffice you know, for that with that for ourselves. But that's a separate uh, thing that maybe we'll get to later. So with that being said, this person who says it's only a sunnah, I don't feel like doing it. That's the other extreme. Because the hadith tells us that the first thing that will be judged on the day of judgment is what? What is Allah's first concern when it comes to our religiosity? Our salah. Our salah, right? The first thing that Allah will look into, judge, account. May He make all of our accounts smooth. May He make may He enter Jannah without account. Allahumma ameen. And if we are to be accounted, may He make it smooth and, 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 and merciful and compassionate as His, His norm, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And not take us into account to every single thing because as the Prophet said, people who are accounted about everything, that is already the beginning of the adab. The fact that Allah will ask you one by one is not good. Because for most people, we said, this, this, go on. That's what we hope for as Muslims, inshallah. May Allah make it so. With that being said, the first question is the salah. What happens if it's deficient? He said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Where does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tell the angels to look? What register? What account? The sunan. Where's their width? Where's their two tahayt al-masjid that you mentioned? The greeting of the masjid that the masjid was made for prayer. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught us as if it's an entity that I won't come in without greeting it, without saying hello. And the gre- gre- greeting of this place, the house of Allah as it's called, is to pray two rakahs, two sunan or more. Uh, the duha prayer, salatul awwabin, the prayer, the sunnah prayer of those who are constantly returning to Allah as it was called. The two before or four before the or two after or four after, these are all options. The two after maghrib, two after isha, with and so on and so forth. These things will fill the holes, will complete the gaps in the person's fund. The dhuhr they happen to miss throughout their lifetime, the us that they were late in because of so-and-so, these sporadic or sometimes more than sporadic, may Allah forgive us all, missed prayers or late prayers. Now the, he'll, the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tell the angels, fill those cracks with the width and the duha and the tarawih and the qiyam layl and the hajjud and all of that. Fill those cracks because I don't want this person, this person tried, I'm going to help you out today. The sunan will fill the place of the fara'id. Even though I didn't ask for these, I asked for those. 
they're the same category. I'll put them together. It's from the mercy of Allah. So, does that sound like a situation where you could just say, meh, I think I'll be okay? Because one fard that's missing is liable. For, we don't know if Allah will punish you. Maybe he'll forgive me, but you're liable. You're legible. You're deserving of punishment in front of Allah. So it's, you know, scholars mentioned the sunnah like in, in Saudi Arabia, we have a rub al-khadi, which is the empty quarter, as it's called. It's a lot more than a quarter of Saudi Arabia. It's the longest continuous desert on earth, from what I know. And if you want to go from western or southern Saudi Arabia to eastern or northern, you have to cross it. It's uninhabited, right? It's the one of the harshest deserts on earth. Uninhabited, no gas stations, no cell phone towers. You're going to go through like four and a half hours of emptiness. So before you hit those four and a half hours, you don't make sure you have a full tank. You got to make sure you have backup because there's no gas stations. And the, your nearest friend will show up in six hours, you know, uh, if you can even contact him. If you don't, okay, would me and you agree that traveling this distance without a spare tire is foolish? 100%. What about me going to the supermarket? I'm going to drive, you know, five minutes to the supermarket. And I, do I need a spare tire? Would you say that's foolish if I don't take one? Yeah, not necessarily, but it's always better to have one. It's always better to have one, but you, you, no one would say you're a fool if you go to the supermarket without one. People say, yeah. But the Rub al Khali, the empty quarter, would you agree that's super foolish and, and deadly? Two thousand percent. Yeah. So our life journey, our existence, our hereafter, is that an important journey to us? It's the most important journey to us. Am I afraid of being stuck in the middle of nowhere with no help, with no spare, to, to dig myself out of the hole or to help myself out of the hole that I dug? Is that a scary thought? Oh. It's terrifying. 100%. Would I be happy if in that situation... With Salah came and said, I got you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala called me here to be by your side. Is that Does that sound comforting and something that we'd want? A hundred percent. The Prophet Muhammad sallallahu he passed by a graveyard and he said, this man here, this grave, one sujood, if he could, not a whole Salah, not a whole Sunnah, if he could put his head on the ground one more time, it'd be better for him and more dearer to him than if you gave him the entire existence, the whole world, the whole dunya. He wishes he could just come back here to put his head onto the ground once. Forget a whole salah, just one sajda. So on the, and that's a reality that's coming to all of us sooner than we think, sooner than we expect, sooner than we like in the hereafter. And when our hereafter starts with death, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it smooth and merciful. Allahumma ameen. We'd want that sunnah. Right? We'd need that backup. We'd never say it was just a sunnah. We would instead say the opposite. I wish I did it. It was just a sunnah. It was so easy. Right? It would use the same statement. As the scholars have said, that the people today abandon things saying it's just a sunnah, while the people of the past used to rush to them saying it's a sunnah. Like, you got to do it. Right? It's, it's, it's a complete different paradigm of existence, right? Of how we look at our, our faring through existence. SubhanAllah. That, that is, is very, very... I like that, the metaphor of the journey. Because it is a life's journey, right? This is the... At least the part that we're conscious about right this journey started way before it started when we testified before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he is our Lord and so forth and so on right so now the other portion right there let's as we talk about that we've talked about the the, the process of chronicling the sunnah we've talked about the sunnah of the companions being a part of the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa the last thing I'll ask if you met somebody um that told you as you know, we live in modern times, and this is an actual modern uh, response of some people. They tell you, they look at you, they say, look, Brother Muhammad, you're awesome, it's great, 
But this hadith stuff, I don't believe in hadith. I only follow Quran. Or I don't believe in the hadith at all. What would you say to this person? I would say let's go to the Quran then. I agree, uh, you know, I agree that you know mankind is full of error. I agree that people are people and perhaps they made mistakes. These are all possibilities, even though the hadith science explores that and tears it to shreds. And, and you know, but that's a whole separate topic that we, we could delve into or could not. But I'll, I'll, I'll go even further. I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. I'll say, let's go to the Quran. What do we do with a verse that says, for example, in Surah Ahzab, where the, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, In the Messenger of Allah is the best example for you. Do what he does. For those, for those who hope in Allah in the last day, you care about Allah, you care about the hereafter, your example is Rasulullah. In another verse, he says, What the Prophet came to teach you, take it, abide by it. And what he forbid you from, stay away from. Where am I going to find what he commanded and what he forbid besides his sayings and his teaching? What are you going to do with a verse if you say only the Quran or the Hadith? I don't need the Hadith, the Quran is enough. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, He's the one that we sent down to you the dhikr, the remembrance. People say, well, that remembrance is the Qur'an. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, The purpose of the remembrance that we reveal to you, so, so there's, another, there's another revelation called the remembrance. And it was sent to make clear to you what has come down to you, the Qur'an. What is that other revelation then? There's another book. It's the Sunnah. Right? The Prophet sallam, what do we do with the verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Surah He doesn't speak from his own volition. He's not speaking from his desires. He's not telling you what he wants or what he thinks. He is simply revelation being revealed to. He's telling you what I'm telling him. Right? He's my messenger. He's my servant. He's my connection with you. He's my messenger to you. He's my, he's your road to me. It's through him. So I said them. Uh, Say if you truly love Allah, follow me. He will love you. So the Quran is telling you left and right. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to do it. I can't put it, or astaghfirullah, I won't put it in a book that's going to be thousands of pages long detailing salah. Instead, I'm going to put it in a human being, a living, breathing, replicable, viewable, recordable example so that you can all have somewhere to look and understand as it happened. You you have the academic, you have the theoretical in the Quran, and you have the practical in a human being that ate like you, that slept like you, that bled like you, that cried like you. So that can be perfect for you. And he, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when, when uh, Aisha was asked about his manners, he said, she said, yamshi. He was a walking Qur'an. Anything you saw in the Qur'an being commanded, he did. Anything you saw being forbid, you'd never see it on him. All the manners that were praised by Allah, he did them. So uh, the, the, the narrative doesn't match. And of course, this is someone, it, it, there's people who usually make this claim, they haven't been through the whole Qur'an because they'd see these verses and realize there's no way to understand without looking at his example. These are also people who have never studied the compilation of the sunnah. Because once you've seen how rigorous it was, the little tidbit that we touched here, once you see the full extent of it, or even you know peruse that very quickly, you glance through it quickly, you'll be, your mind will be boggled by what these companions went through, and then the t- students, and then reaching down to the famous ones like Bukhari, Muslim, and so on and so forth. What they went through, the different places they came from, the parts of the world that they traversed, the personal injury that they suffered to do all that. They gained nothing, right? And a lot of them. And they, they, they were attacked and they were ridiculed. And they went through different trials as the norm of, of this dunya. But especially in carrying the hadith to us, there's no conclusion that will be made except that um, 
that this is really from Rasulullah this is the interpretation and the implementation of the deen of Allah as he wishes and one more thing I want to ask is that Rasulullah that I want to add to this is that he foretold this he said soon you will encounter people and listen to his description of them this man he will be shaban he said he will be satiated full stomach he's, he's almost like the images he's, he's picking his teeth he's kicking back on his couch Right, he's, he's, he's reclining. So it's almost an image, and it's like you could almost put you put the image on his hands on his stomach, he's like, going like this, you know, just ate a nice meal. This is the image Yusuf Hussain is giving. And he said, Between us and you, meaning the people he's arguing with, is the book of Allah. Whatever you find in there, we will do. And whatever you don't find in there, don't, 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 don't at me with that. I'm not interested. So he said, these people, I don't know what they're doing, but it's not Islam. That's not, that's not Islam. They don't belong to Islam. They're not teaching Islam. They don't know Islam. And they, they know on the day of judgment, they have nothing to do with him either. As opposed to those who follow the Sunnah, he said, he will recognize them amongst the billions of creation. And he will not stop until he stands by their side in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying, please, he didn't mean it. Please, it was an accident. Uh, let, let this one go. Please, Allah. Can you imagine? Billions of Muslims that he stands and they said, How will you recognize us? Oh Rasulullah. And he said, They will come like the white horses. If any of you had a white horse, meaning white in his uh in his in his mane or in his spout and his nose, amongst others that didn't have that, would you recognize him? Of course, through the crowd, you'd be like, that's mine, the one with the white. He said, That's how I'll see you guys because of the wudu that brightens your body. The sunnah that you follow, the implementation of how to pray exactly like him. He said, so I'll recognize them. That must be only for the elite, right? The highest of the high or the, the, the people who stuck to the sunnah the most. That They must get that, right? That's not what he said, sallallahu alayhi wa He said, shafa'ati li ahlil kaba'ir min ummati. My shafa'a, my intercession. I'm going to try to do this for who? For the elite? For only Bukhari and Muslim? He said, I will stand there by the side of the people who committed the major sins and beg on their behalf. He's going to stand there on those who are major sinners and say, please, Allah, they tried. So I, I would say, you know, the sunnah is, is the key to all that. And uh, for us to say, uh, look into the Quran, you'll, fi- you'll not find the majority of this. And you'll not find even the explanation of the Quran itself because it relegated that through the wisdom of Allah to the sunnah. You know, that's what, Jazakallah khair, Brother Muhammad. That was beautifully stated, you know. Mm-hmm. And as we approach the ending portion, I think the best way we can uh, come to the conclusion, po- concluding point is, please, how if, if someone came to you today and they said, I want to practice the sunnah, how would you encourage them to go about learning the sunnah in modern context today? And then also, how, how can one have balance in practicing the sunnah? And uh, learning as well, to where they don't go too extreme, to where they don't overly punish themselves if they're not following certain uh, sunnahs of the Prophet. So, the key to both these questions is knowledge. You got to regularly learn. You won't get the sunnah of the Prophet in one sitting. Just like we talked today about the compilation of hadith, we spoke today about the sunnah in conjunction with the Quran. These are all topics within their own right that people have written endlessly about and have majors in college about and have. Uh, delved into as their own separate topics and dissected. So we won't do it justice in this gathering. 
And Rasulullah after all this you've heard about him, I hope you'd feel inspired uh, and, and encouraged to look into it, into it more. What was he like? What was his life like? They have books like the Sealed Nectar or When the Moon Split. Very short, couple hundred pages, covering his life cover to cover without having to pour through volumes, without having to like look up the conflicting stories and find out which is the one that's been verified. No, no, no. They've done all that work and they put it into the most simplest form. A couple hundred pages cover to cover, life to death. I'd say start there. The least you can do is to know him. As one of my great teachers, Sheikh Muhammad Shinawi used to say very often, it is a... Uh, it, 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 you know, I don't remember the exact quote, so I hope I hope you'd forgive me for this. But basically, he would say, "It is an absolute disaster to not love him, to love the Prophet But the bigger disaster is to claim to love him and have no idea who he is. That's even worse, because for people who don't love him, they just they just need to know him. That's the problem. Once they know him, they'll love him. But for someone who says, "No, I love him with all my heart, and he means the world to me," what well, we were striving to do as Muslims, but then to have no idea who he is is a catastrophe. Because now you're just saying something that doesn't match and is actually going to end up harming you because you might do... That's where we see people, for example, who when he gets insulted, they pick up a weapon and kill somebody. Mm-hmm. Is that what he would have done? Is that his sunnah, sallallahu alayhi Is that what he taught? Is that what he would be pleased with? So your love of him... Let me interject on that point real quick. Sure, please. You know, what's interesting about that example, it makes me think about in France, right, when they, um, either it was France or somewhere in Europe where someone made that caricature of the Prophet, right, and people wanted to go and attack and do stuff. And, you know, to me personally, I laughed about it, not because I don't, I think it's funny or it's like uh, something that should be done. It should be condoned, shouldn't be condoned. But I said, guess what the secret is, guys? We don't know what he looks like either, right? Like we have descriptions, but this drawing that you made isn't gonna do any justice of what he actually looked like. And even the descriptions don't do justice of what he actually looked like, right? We don't know, except yeah. those who have been blessed to see him in dreams. And even then, I've never heard somebody say, Oh, this is exactly give you a detailed of description of what he looked like that we can actually see and materialize, right? But like you said, people, these extremes, when they don't have knowledge, they go to these extremes and say, oh, you did this. Let me go and do that. But if you knew his sunnah, you just keep quiet or you look for the whatever route is the least fit in the route. Right. And I know a lot of people, they won't like that response. You just said they'll feel like that we're supposed to defend him. But if you know his sunnah, so I said them, this is nothing new. So like you said, you drew that you drew that character. First of all, that I'm, I'm upset that you tried to respect my prophet. But with that being said, that's not him. I don't know who you drew. You know, you had fun with this little, you know, or vulgarity that you did. It made you excitement. It, it made you excited. It made you happy, but it's not going to get a rise out of me. I would condemn it and I would call for it to end. But besides that, I'm not going to do anything different because that's not him. That's simply not what he looked like. You drew some character. You pretended that's him. I know that's not him because he was the most beautiful thing on earth. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The Ennis medic said when the full moon came out and he was a child. Ennis medic when the person dies is about 11 or 12 years old. So he's a child. So he says, one night I see the full moon. And I think to myself, is Rasulullah more beautiful than the full moon? Because in the desert, the full moon is the epitome of beauty. Fills up the sky. It's huge. Lights everywhere. Uh, especially back then. And as a child, he goes and says, I look at Rasulullah And then I look at the moon. And then I look. And then I look. He does it a couple of times. He's a kid. And then I concluded that Rasulullah is more beautiful than the full moon. So it, it, with that being, those hadith warm my heart. And those drawings, that's not him. So you're not attacking him. Someone might say like, oh, that's just you in a position of weakness trying to appease yourself. No, I'm following the sunnah of the Prophet When they 
when he started to preach, they began to write poetry, making fun of Mudhammam, a name called Mudhammam. And that is the opposite of Muhammad. Them is the opposite of Hamd. So he's not the most praised. That's what they're saying. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, far above what he, they, they claim, but this is their claim. He is Mudhammam, the dispraised one, constantly being dispraised. He, would, he replied by how saying, no, I'm Muhammad and my grandfather called me Muhammad and Allah is praising me. I'm praising the heavens and one day the events will go off in my... He knew all that. So I said, in general, right? Even if he may not know specifically, he knew that he was the most praised in the heavens. He knew his status with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he didn't need to argue any of that. He said they're writing poetry and cursing out someone named Mudhammam. My name is Muhammad. That's not me. And the scholars have said today, there's not almost a single line that mentions Mudhammam. There's maybe one or two that that uh, survived uh, in in history, but there's, they wrote day and night. This was their this was their their their, their field, right? This was their media. They so they pumped out info left and right. We barely have one or two lines based on what they said. But what about the poetry and the verses of the Quran first, and then the things of the Sahaba praising Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam obliterates it, blows it out of the water completely. You know the the amount of poetry, the amount of you know. Every single child that we have in our centers and almost every single one of us here watching, if you tell them, they're going to finish that song, right? They're going to know mm-hmm. the next two lines. That's not a coincidence. Wasallam. So if we said, we don't know who you're drawing, that's not him. Wasallam. That's super disrespectful and you're going to suffer economically. You're going to suffer in, in our, our unified stance against it. We're going to condemn it. And whatever, you know, if our, if our, if our governments were able to take that stance and able to do what they're supposed to do then there would be a much more unified response that would be also appropriate but because that's not in our hands and that's beyond what we're saying what is in your hands to rise above like he did so I said that. to say that's not who he is in fact my co-worker will see that drawing and also feel that even if he or she is not muslim why because they look to me and they see muhammad sallallahu daily they see him when i talk they see him when I laugh, they see him when I cry, they see him when I eat, they see him when I stop at Dhuhr and Has and Maghrib to worship, no matter what's going on. So they see some drawing with a bomb or with woman or some vulgarity, and then they see me. Where do you think they will see Muhammad Sallallahu Where do you think the image of Muhammad Sallallahu will pop into the heads first, if that's how I act? That drawing that some nobody drew, or and that was given no attention, that was died out after its basic condemnation, or... Will the first image be me, their co-worker who sits in the next cubicle or down that station or whatever, and the daily Islam, the daily sunnah that I show them? Mm-hmm. Something for us to ask. SubhanAllah. That is something very interesting for us to ask. Something we should definitely take time to look at and consider. You know, what it looks to seem to be in this situation is uh, really knowing the Prophet wasallam is very key oh, and very instrumental to uh learning the sunnah, and also how to practice Islam at the highest of levels, right? How to be a Muslim at the complete best. You need the sunnah. It's essential, right? Because we don't follow any other, we don't follow uh, somebody, Jeff, from your your local job or (laughs) some guy you play pickup basketball with. No, we follow Muhammad, right? And following him is how we're able to attain, because he was the highest of the high, at least so we attain some level of uh, uh, status and success before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this life and the next, right? Um, one thing I'd like to tell you, tell you, thank you, Brother Muhammad, for coming here and speaking to us today about the sunnah and just chronicling of it and how it was deta- detailed and, you know, how they kept up with that. Um, 
Is there any last minute thing you want to share mention, before we? No, go ahead. You just as a summary, just one, one thing because you, I uh, want to piggyback upon what you just said. Just as a summary of that last question, what should we do? I would summarize in two points. Learn about him, which is what I kind of was trying to say. And then your point, apply it. Do it. Mm -hmm. Everything you learn from a sunnah, try to do it. And that is how, that is like the best way of coming close to him and finding about, that's the, your best entryway into all of this. Someone might say, should I start studying hadith then formally? Should I pick up a hadith history book? I will tell you, everyone, the first step is learn the basics about him through a biography, like when the moon split or the sealed nectar, and then implement the basics of it. And just one last thing, which is how do you know when it gets to too much, for example, or what's applicable in time and place? That comes with the learning. That comes with the mentorship. Regular connection with scholarship or imams that will tell you, okay, this sunnah, it's okay. You may not have to do it in this fashion because time and place dictates that. That's a very difficult place to navigate on our own. So we need scholarship and we need um, that tutelage and that mentorship of our teachers and our mentors, people who have studied formally to let us know that, hey, I'm struggling to apply the sunnah here or it seems to be uh, impractical or harmful in this situation. Should I abandon it or is that wrong? Then they'll tell you, okay, for example, this is something that could be done later or it's something that, no, it's actually more important than you think it is. That will only come from that mentorship, right? That will only come from the tutelage. Uh, that you have access to people who have given this way more time than you and given it way more attention. So, inshallah, their conclusions will be more sound, right? And more in line with what the Prophet actually meant because they studied it. So that's an important connection to have to ensure that you don't end up feeling that, is the sunnah harming me? Am I implementing things that are now pushing me away from Allah? How does that make sense? Sometimes that is, uh, very often that needs tutelage or mentorship to properly uh, guide us and make sure we stay the course in implementing sunnah that's not something that is that we feel is burdensome or or taking us backwards inshallah no definitely i think to, uh so for me to summarize you know like you said learn the sunnah but learn of course learn about the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and then apply what you learn and one thing that my sheikh always tells me um be kind to yourself right um we are not perfect beings we're a culmination of the events and people and or things that environments that are in our li lives that we've interacted with that make us who we are today but the constant process of trying to refine yourself right trying to go through and find the right way find the huck purify your being purify yourself is one that is for a lifetime right we'll never finish it yeah. we'll never be like muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam but at least we can take the first step to working towards yeah. becoming like him as much as possible so for those listening exactly. please um Take these points. Uh, definitely do your best to learn about the sirah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. If I'm not mistaken, the companions used to actually teach it as if it was a surah to their, their yeah. children about the sirah yeah. of the Prophet yeah. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You know? So applying that also after in a, a manner that is progressive, um, in a manner that, of course, has mentorship and some type of tutelage because we ourselves, if, you know, it's, it's funny, I was talking to somebody about that. If you just take the... Um, we're talking about why the four mujtahid imams are very important. If we took all of the hadith on just salah alone, I don't think maybe some people will pray standing upside down. Some people will pray doing like <laughs> we, we wouldn't know what to do. It's just so much information and how to boil that down. Right. So that's why you need those yeah. teachers and those people with that knowledge to help guide you. Because if not, you'll steer yourself crazy trying to uh, yeah. uh, understand. They filtered it. No. They've done that, that decades of legwork needed to filter out the lies, their straight up lies, to filter out things that were changed, abrogated, right? There were rules in the beginning that were changed later. They've done that legwork. And uh, they've looked at tens of thousands of hadith about just salah, just hajj, just this. 
to give you that cream of the crop where we take for granted and feel today, well, it's obvious what to do. Well, that's because they already did the work, <laughs> right? They already compiled it for us. So 100%, you know, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be someone, people who recognize our limits and then also recognize where to search for uh, upping our game and developing, progressing in the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants. I mean, you know, I was hearing a quote, I think, I believe they said it was Imam Shafi who said this, uh, the deen is complete or the sunnah is complete. All we have to do is practice it now, right? Like it's, everything is done, let's just practice it. So, Brother Muhammad, I'd just like to tell you, Jazakallah uh, thank you for coming on and educating right. us uh, about the sunnah. We pray Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts from all of us. We pray he forgives us for our sins. And we pray Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows us to meet our beloved Prophet sallallahu in the Firdaus and talk to him and interact with him and show him love and embrace him, inshallah. So, brothers and sisters, thank you for listening to the Remaster Podcast. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel, Muslim American Society. Please check out Muslim American Society, the organization as a whole, very beautiful organization with very great minds trying to uh, do great work for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This movement is a very beautiful movement, very beautiful people, and we have to stay together, right? Community through unity was the theme this year for the AIM conference, so holding on tightly to the rope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But it's not just an individual thing. There's an individual aspect, but it's more of a communal aspect. We have to do this collectively, which is why, one last point, why my chef was telling me this. He said that some ulama say if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had delayed the advent of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, right? He would have delayed the advent of Abu Bakr, of Uthman, of Ali, of his companions, because it's a package deal. It's not just him by himself, but it's him and his companions, you know? So definitely, please find yourself a jama'ah of good uh, brothers and sisters um, to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and do good in the community. This is Remaster Podcast. I'll talk to you guys later. Assalamu alaikum. Well, I think it's not a lot of